You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Once again to Core Curriculum, the show where people from the Christian Humanist Radio Network journey together through Columbia University's Core Reading List. Tonight is Series 3, Episode 3 on the Epithalamia of Sappho. And with me tonight uh, is a larger group than usual, which is going to be great. Tonight, I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me are David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast, Jordan Poss, and Sarah Poss in her first appearance on the radio network. We're going to get started by going around and letting everyone introduce themselves. Uh, We'll start with David, and then I will go last. So, David, tell us who you are. Well, I'm David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Radio. You already did it. You already did that part. Anyway, um, I'm on the Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, and... When I can, I worm my way into other podcasts um, when uh, fun topics are going on, and I interview people sometimes on profiles, but not for a while because I, my book requests have dried up, I guess. Anyways, quarantine. I'll blame it on quarantine. All right. Uh, I'm Jordan Poss. Uh, I am a frequent guest on City of Man, and um, not for a while now, but very often on the Sectarian Review, as well as other shows here and there, especially for like Halloween crossovers and stuff. Um, weirdly, I've been on Book of Nature twice, although I don't, I have hardly a scientific bone in my body. But uh, <laughs> we got to talk about uh, The Shining and Twilight Zone, but uh, awesome. that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, and I teach history at uh, Piedmont Tech. Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina. And I'm Sarah Post. This is my first time doing any sort of podcast. Um, and I was invited just because Jordan Post loves doing podcasts. I teach eighth grade English at a private Christian school in Greenville, South Carolina. Thanks. I am Katie Norman Grubbs, and I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. I am uh, usually on the Christian Feminist Podcast, but uh, I've gotten to the privilege to be on several of the other shows, um, Christian Humanist Podcast, Sectarian Review, and all of that's been super, super fun. Listeners, I'm going to go ahead and explain why there are four of us tonight, which is not always uh, not always the size group that we have. Tonight we're talking about Sappho's marriage poems, and when I realized that our group was myself and my husband David and Jordan. I had the idea to invite Sarah, Jordan's wife, to join us as well. I thought it would be really interesting to get the perspectives of two married couples talking about marriage poems. So that's why there are four of us this evening. And uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into the actual poetry here in a little bit, but what I wanted to do first is just to talk about what our previous experiences have been, if any, with Sappho's poetry, and I'll start. I will out myself as a Sappho newbie. I had not read any Sappho before 
preparation to do episode two of this very series, which if you're listening in order, you just heard me um, on that previous episode. And so I'm very, very new to this poetry and to be honest, don't have a very extensive background in this time period even. So um, in this particular episode, I'm going to be leaning uh, a good bit on David and Jordan's backgrounds in studying texts of the same period and um, giving us some really, really good context as we get a little further in. So uh, what about what about the rest of you, David? What about you? Any background with Sappho? Gosh, maybe a couple were assigned back in a world-led survey I took as an undergraduate, but I have not encountered them since then. I've never taught them. And so uh, this is this is definitely one of those texts where um, I've, I I don't feel like I have hardly any kind of edge at all, <laughs> which is fun. So yeah, uh, uh, I, I I enjoyed it. It's it's uh, it's different from other things that I've read in that kind of broader Greek literature um, sphere, and I'm. I'm looking forward to talking about the ways that it's connected to stuff we're more familiar with and and ways that it's not. Awesome. How about you guys, Jordan and Sarah? I, I'm completely new to Sappho. I was introduced to it when Jordan started reading it a few weeks ago, and he kind of gave me some insight on Sappho. And then <laughs> I spent the next week or so just thinking, you know, what would people think if they found a word I had written? And would they think it was a poem? (laughs) Um, But no, I really, I'm very new to it. So I've just been learning a little bit from Jordan and the um, Penguin Classics that he has and just just talking with him. Um, So I'm really new to this. Uh, That makes me sound a lot more experienced than I am. Um, When it comes to ancient Greek poets uh, and Sappho in particular, uh, I've been familiar with her probably going back to certainly early college, maybe high school, um, but just kind of as a name. I mean, I've got a number of anthologies of shorter Greek lyrics, and she's almost always included. Uh, but other than being the only named female poet from the ancient world that we have, or from at least the Greek world, um, I read through those anthologies many times and never really Nothing, none of her stuff ever really stuck. Uh, I w- but that's that's probably just personal bias. I mean, I was always <laughs> looking for, you know, the inscriptions at the memorials at Thermopylae and things like that. Um, so uh, familiar, like long time, long time acquaintance of Sappho, uh, finally trying to get to know her a little bit for these these episodes. I see what you mean about it. I think I think that this particular poetry is a little bit hard to hold in your mind because it's so beautifully spare. You know, she says she says a lot, but in, in very few words in the same way that it, I, it, I don't know. It's harder for me to keep something in my mind that doesn't have it's almost easier to memorize something like a Shakespearean sonnet because there's so much meter there to help to scaffold it. And so many more words. Ironically, it helps me remember it better. Um, well, let's move into talking about some some specific poems. Um, but be- actually, no, we're not. One more bit of front matter, listeners, before we talk about specific poems. David is going to define for us what is an epithalamian, which is a wedding poem. Well, you just did it. Okay. 
<laughs> I'm assuming you have a fuller definition to give than it's a wedding poem, which we already said at an, the beginning. Uh, an epithalamian or an epithalamium, um, either form is fine. Uh, yeah, it's it's a wedding poem. Um, the the etymology of it uh, is from epi, which is a, a preposition. Epi, epi, like 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 uh, I don't know, epiphenomena or epi. I don't know other other words that start with epi. Uh, epidermis. Oh yeah, there's a good one. Epidemic. And then, <laughs> huh? <laughs> epidemic oh yeah very apropos yeah yeah there you go Epid- okay so i guess epi words are really relevant right now um and then thalamus which means uh, it's an inner chamber in, in particular it is the the bridal chamber it is the place where um after the sort of the ritual formalities of the wedding um the marriage is consummated as part of an extension of the wedding um and that's that's part of what uh, part of what we need to keep in mind here. Um, we have a very kind of nice division in uh, much of the modern West between what is the wedding and what is the honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. And in the ancient world, those two things are much more closely together, um, sometimes in weird and awkward ways that I don't know if they're relevant, but we'll see. Um, so, so this is a song that is being said, um, before the wedding chamber, as you approach towards the wedding chamber, um, as you epi the thalamian, (laughs) as you epi the, towards the thalamus, um, as you're coming, coming towards it, coming to it, coming into it, coming by it, uh, this is a song to celebrate that moment. So it's not exactly "Here Comes the Bride" um, in in the uh, in the etymology of it, but many of the songs that we're looking at today might strike us as more. This is more "Here Comes the Bride." This is more a wedding ceremony, though some of them are very definitely about the about the etymology. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry for giving spoilers for uh, for your definition. But you get a lot more information, which I knew you would. So I felt okay about it. Um, Okay, so we're going to move into talking about some specific poems. And we are going to begin with with David's choice, which is LP44. Um, So David, do you want to give us a very brief kind of description of what's happening in LP44? And then we can kind of discuss it. Well, before I get into that, I just I just need to to sort of lay out that 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 uh, both both Jordan and I made a hard play for forty four, um, and only the fact that my wife is hosting gave me an edge. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, forty uh, four. Okay, we should probably say something about this. Um, apparently, the fragmentary record of Sappho. Um, has had different translations and different editions, and the numberings are not always the same. So uh, when we give numbers, listeners, it may or may not apply to what you have access to or what you find. Yes. Um, uh, the text may be the same. Um, the L number, um, I think that 
Is that the Loeb Classics number? I can't remember. It's uh, Lobel Page. Oh, okay. A team yeah. of scholars who assembled a critical edition of Sappho some time ago. Okay. All right. Well, I just assumed that it, that the L was for the <laughs> the giant library of of matching classical volumes, but but no. Anyway, those are the numbers that we're working with. Um, so if your numbers don't match. That's that is why uh, the one that we're calling LP44 uh, has uh, a title assigned to it in uh, in the translation that I'm using, uh, which is uh, the ah, marriage. Yes, the marriage of Hector and Andromache. I'm looking at a PDF, dear listeners, so it's not navigating well. And listeners, I should say really quick, too, that Dave and I are both using the same translation, which is the Poetry of Sappho translation and notes by Jim Powell. Um, and that is uh, that is Oxford University Press 2007. Um, and what we'll do is just as each of us talks for the first time about a specific poem, then we can kind of say which translation we're using, because we might you might hear us quote things slightly differently. So that's the translation that David is about to be talking about, listeners. Right. So the marriage of Hector and Androm- and Andromache, this one immediately caught my attention as it caught yours too, Jordan. I imagine because this is the first time in this text when I found some names that I knew. <laughs> it was like, oh hey, old friends, they're here also. Uh, Hector and Andromache, uh, Hector the um, the best of the princes of Troy in the Iliad, um, and arguably the best aristocratic character in the whole poem uh and his wife uh andromache um they have an amazing scene in the iliad where they talk on a wall and their baby is scared of his helmet and that all of that is wonderful but here is we have uh, a fragment of what is apparently a longer poem in which uh sappho writes an epithalamian for these two incredibly famous characters um including uh, descriptions of what they look like, especially her, um, summoning, uh, summoning gods and people to rejoice in their union. Um, and it, it's, it's all very wonderful, and I, I don't know what y'all's impression of it was, um, but I had a very hard time not seeing it as um, a really delightful form of fan fiction. Uh, <laughs> that's a great know, description. I, that never occurred to me, but it's, that's so true. <laughs> well, it, it's it's even to uh, even to the extent that, um, if I remember rightly, some the uh, he, Sappho is using some of the I, th- I think some of the same maybe some of the same uh, epic uh, epic epithets and things like that, some of the same epic similes. Anyway. Um, it, it felt more like I was reading Homer than Sappho had so far, but it is still not Homer, right? Um, the, the genre distinction is still there. But when you see all these characters show up, it suddenly becomes a story in a way that most of these lyrics are not. And so th- this is probably the first place in the book where I felt like I was on solid ground and I knew what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, uh, what did you guys think of 44? Uh, yeah, to, to David's point, I, what was, I think before we started recording, I said I felt like 
in Sappho, I'm kind of adrift, and this was sort of a life preserver, so I was just clinging to the wreckage. <laughs> um, I, think, I think when he first read this one, I was like, you should pick that one, because <laughs> yeah. because he was explaining a few of the things. I was like, wait, what's what's this? And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's so-and-so or whatever. And, yeah, Hector and Andromache, whose scenes in the Iliad never fail to move me, um, and even, you know, far-striking Apollo makes an appearance and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, one of the things that jumped out to me about this poem, uh, it, it is, uh, I, I have no Greek, so, um, I have to rely on commentators for this, but apparently, uh, for this particular poem, Sappho used a longer line, which is more like Homer and less like her usual lyrics, which I thought was ah, interesting. That's really uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was very interesting, so she's, she's changing her style up for a... Hmm a loftier subject than, you know, maybe uh, some of the Barry White material of her other songs. Um, but then uh, <laughs> uh, the the dramatic irony of the poem is what jumped out at me because having, you know, listeners who have heard the uh, Iliad episodes of Core Curriculum will know what a uh, Iliad fanboy I am. Uh, knowing the Iliad... And uh, knowing that Sappho's original original audience knew the Iliad, or at least the story of the Trojan War, uh, as far more intimately than any of us can, there has to be some kind of uh, poignant knowledge of what's going to happen to this couple, sort of like looming over the poem. So, so all that we're getting in this fragment is the festivity, uh, you know, the festivity of the beginning of this union. But of course, anybody listening to the song is going to know that it ends with Hector killed ignominiously, uh, Andromache enslaved, their son thrown off of the city's walls. Um, I mean, it's it's it, it really makes me wish that there were more of this particular fragment so that I could know if and how she developed any kind of any kind of those themes in it, and and if so, how she turned that toward the subject of marriage. Yeah. How he, how Sappho managed to get, uh, how she managed to get Priam in the story, mm-hmm. like you, you, Hector and his companions es- escort a darting-eyed woman from sacred Thebe, uh, delicate Andromache aboard their ship on the salt sea, and there's descriptions. So he said, his father leapt up eagerly, and word went to his friends throughout the spacious city. So there's Priam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, except here he is the the delighted father of the groom, as the groom has shown up with his procession, um, bringing the bride with them. He's proud. He's happy. Um, he's seeing, you know, and, and, and all of those ways that a wedding means for a father this kind of full circle, Right. Um, now, now my son will rise up, and his sons will have sons, and lo, many generations. Except, except we've read the Iliad, and we know that's not how that works. I thought, um, I it, that kind of more stately mode that feels more like an epic. I, I was feeling that a lot in this, in the way that she walks kind of almost in a, in a cataloging way through the different types of people. So she's dropping specific people's names, but she talks about Hector and his companions. Um, and then there are girls with slender ankles, young unmarried men. And then towards the end of the fragment, the women who were older 
and then there are more men. And so it's kind of telling you all these different, it made me think about actually about the parts of the Bible where it says young men do this, young women do this, old men, old women, kind of giving all the parts of society. But I also, one of my favorite things about this fragment is that you have that epic mode and she's using that more that that mode which is not a which is not as much like her other poetry however she also does something in this poem which is very much like her other poetry which is this kind of sensory focus is the best way i can describe it that you see in a lot of her other poems so when she talks about the salt she talks about the salt sea which is true that the sea is salty but it's also a smell and it's also a taste you know how when you're at the seashore you can taste the salt on your lips um she talks about the scented purple robes um and she describes the many golden bracelets which again is visual but also that's an auditory thing too i don't know i was like hearing the clinking of the bracelets when i was reading it and those kind of very small sensory details sound a lot more like her other lyrics so she still has that kind of um that way of writing even in a story like this which is her writing about a very well-known story in more of an epic tone and yet there's still these little touches that remind of her other lyrics um, Sarah, was there anything that you particularly noticed about this one or that you, that you liked about it? Um, I just, I, I think you said it really well, Katie, but I mean, I was, I was just going to say like, it's still, she has some really beautiful choices of words and I, I don't know a lot about translations. And so I know there are different ones, but just lively eyed, graceful and drama key. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just a beautiful it really is a beautiful scene. I mean, and I think you're right because she used so many sensory details. It's easy to imagine the sounds and the the sights that that are going on. I mean, there's like mules and there's flutes and castanets and singing, and it it really is a beautiful description. And it, it is too bad that there isn't more to it, so that we can just kind of enjoy more of her descriptions. So I think. I think of the poems that I read with Jordan, this this one does have a more memorable like scene. It's easier for me to imagine like everything happening. So hmm. it is beautiful. And not to uh, belabor this point, but it, again, to contrast it with Homer, yeah. in, the, in the Iliad, almost all the sensory detail you get is heat and dust and bronze spear points ripping into groins and you know <laughs> and, you know bone bone splitting and and stuff like that or you know the the one sensory image i remember from homer that is positive is uh, his many many descriptions of roasting meat um when all the warriors stop to eat and and this is this is just nice light years away from that it is you know where i mean it, it really is um it really is carefully crafted to celebrate something as as opposed to the more grim uh celebration slash commemoration of the iliad yeah. um yeah again I've, I've got to cling to to hector as a life preserver but but that 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 angle on it did really make it stand out I never saw the direct-to-video Aladdin sequel, <laughs> but I grew up watching the trailers for it before other movies that we did own, 
and this whole streets lined with wine bowls everywhere and myrrh and cassia and frankincense in the air and all the rest of it. Uh, it's very much, it, it reminds me of, they're finally getting married. You know, like it's it, like, like that's, what I, <laughs> that's what I get off of this. And, uh, you know, for, for those whose Troy is mainly that of an encompassed city, um, a city under siege, a city with its back against its own walls, if that even makes sense. Um, it, it's it's so fascinating to see Sappho being able to imagine and give us a different ilium than the one that burned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, and uh, speaking of the city, I mean, when Priam leaps up or he rose at once, mine says, or uh, Hector's yeah. father rose up the same way bad news spreads through Troy over and over and over again, you know, swift winged rumor, right? Uh, here you got good news doing the same thing and to much different effect. That's a great point. Um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, you were talking about the description of the just David, like it's, you know, it's like a big party and there's all the different spices and wine and stuff. Let's go ahead on that note. Let's, Let's talk about your choice, Jordan, because the one you chose to me is along that same kind of theme. Let's see, which one was that? 30, right? Yes, okay. uh, V30, Voight 30. Um, and this one's really short. Uh, and may the maidens all night long celebrate your shared love in song and the bride's bosom a violet blossom. Get up now, rouse that gang of fellows, your boys, and we shall sleep as well as the bird that intones piercing moans. Uh, that's the translation by Aaron Puchigian uh, for Penguin Classics, which um, is what I was also consulting in episode one. Um, I, since since uh, David uh, sniped uh, Hector away from me, I, I was this is the first one, this is the first one that I thought of. Uh, because apparently it, the, the bird is not as explicitly named, but most commentators seem to agree that this is the nightingale. Um, and uh, one of my great modern poetic loves is John Keats. And so mentioning nightingales uh, immediately evokes the ode on a nightingale, which is both beautiful and plaintive and simultaneously kind of a celebration of the nightingale. Gale, but there's also kind of an elegiac tone to it as well, um, not, which I think is an interesting choice to bring in here. I, I don't, I don't know what particular significance the nightingale may have had specifically to the Greeks, because I know you know uh, the owl is is so closely associated with Athena, and uh, what is it that um, in episode one we talked about? some bird really closely identified with Aphrodite and I've already forgotten it because <laughs> I've, I have both slept and not slept since then. Um, so, so, uh, commentators have interpreted this a couple of different ways. Uh, Carol Ann Duffy who wrote notes. Um, Oh wait, no, these are Pachigian's own notes, uh, suggests that, um, it, uh, there, there's some kind of significance to the nightingale, but also it's piercing moans are supposed to suggest the bride on the wedding night. um, Something else that jumped out of, about it to me as well, and there's a bunch of other poems that we could mention like this, but uh, it's already popped up in, in David's choice. Let me see. Uh, in David's uh, LP44, it mentions Hector and his men. Right, It's not just the bride and the groom. They're, the groom has a, a posse, right? 
Um, and uh, that pops up here as well. So, you know, um, uh, get up now, rouse that gang of fellows, you boys. Uh, several of the poems that we were, we were looked at for this, it mentioned the, again, the kind of uh, the squad that rolls with the, br- uh, the groom who not just, who don't just escort the couple, but actually guard the uh, Thelemos, uh, right? The, uh, the, the marriage yeah. chamber. So that's, again, the, to, to go back to kind of one of our original points, um, the, you know, the wedding night is way more public in this culture. Uh, you actually, uh, it, it, some of the stuff that I read to prep for this, it pointed out that the, um, these epithalamia were probably sung by children's choirs at the door of the chamber. And I, I, I don't know about hearing kids sing some of these songs. Um, yeah, especially uh, the one yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> roof beams and Mars and the size of certain guys' feet and that kind of thing. But uh, so Not you've got great. a choir of children singing potentially body songs and a, a bunch of dudes escorting you to the chamber, uh, which may have some kind of, you know, I, I'm I'm of mixed. I'm, oh, go ahead. Well, it is interesting though, because like I know, I mean, yeah, we balk at the idea of having children involved in some sort of in this type of of celebration of marriage. But yeah, I think our generation, especially in the church, we're recognizing that it's important to celebrate that aspect. With I mean, to an extent, like, and not make it seem taboo with our kids. Does that make sense? Like. Okay, I, I don't know if that sounds yeah. crazy. It's yeah. like, okay, we need to just we need to talk about this. We cannot just make this like something that no one talks about and that, you know, we just let kids figure out on their own. But then we also don't want to go to kids singing body songs at a marriage. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> balance. Like we've gotta find a balance here. I'm not ready for kids singing songs. Yeah, because like some of these are basically bathroom stall boats. Yeah, we don't we don't like. need that. But it is interesting, like the other extreme is something that I think I'm like, oh, yeah, some some sort of acknowledgement of what exit, what what's what the actual purpose of marriage is, and I mean all of these that we've looked at and and will look at, I mean they kind of revolve around one thing. You don't get a lot of um, there's not a lot of discussion of you know like like the Book of Common Prayer about the purposes of marriage. I mean that's you know, lifelong companionship and, and that kind of thing, all of which I think probably are what Christianity has brought to marriage. Uh, cause when, fidelity. Yeah, yeah fidelity, uh, things like that. We, 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 we talked about that some in the Iliad episodes, particularly in regard to, you know, Helen and uh, people like that or uh, Achilles. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a different world. <laughs> It's a very different world, and um, to go back to, to the, the gang of guys, I mean, I've, I've read some stuff. Oh, what, that's what I was about to say a minute ago. There's some kind of anthropological explanations of the group of guys, like, you know, there's some sort of, you know, prehistoric kidnapping ritual, and um, I, I'm always a little bit hesitant to read those kinds of assumptions into it, but nevertheless, you've got choirs of people attending the, the, the groom and the bride to the chamber and then a bunch of dudes standing around all night to make sure that everything happens the way it should. Uh, I don't know, uh, David, Katie, what would y'all, what, what, what did y'all see in this, this particularly, I mean, this, this is just eight lines in my edition. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. A little seven brides for seven brothers. 
<laughs> a little bit. It made me think there there were two different things I was thinking about. One is that this particular fragment really emphasizes to me emphasizes the youthfulness of all these people involved. So you talked about this gang mm-hmm. of bachelors and then but there's it's also maidens, right? It's a group of women, young women who were keeping vigil together. And uh, it made me think, too, I think another reason that um, this kind of tone is a little more absent in talk of weddings nowadays is in part just because a lot of us are we're so much older when we get married now. And, yeah. you know, so, you know, if but if you imagine these all as very young people, um, you know, you have this these yeah. groups of maidens, yeah. these groups of young men, and there's, you know, liveliness and high spirits. And so that was one thing I was thinking about. But also, it, really, I mean, this is a this is a custom that persisted for a really long time. I mean, when I was reading this, you know, and thinking about you know, the everybody hanging around while the marriage is being consummated and all that, it made me think of two things. It made me think of, weirdly, Marie Antoinette, um, oh, yeah. because we just did, we just did, uh, I, I did a, an episode uh, on Marie Antoinette recently on the film Marie Antoinette, but, you know, the, the kind of custom of observed consummations of royal weddings to make sure that, you know, um, the marriage was consummated, but it also made me think of Martin and Katie Luther whose marriage yeah. consummation was also witnessed by like multiple people. Um, not exclusively men. I think there was at least one woman there, um, but friends of Luther's who observed this. And um, part of it was because it had been an older tradition. But in a lot of cases, I think one of the reasons that that happened too, was that they wanted everyone to know that they were really for real getting married. They weren't just saying, Oh yeah, we're married. Um, you know, it was an, it was an attempt to show to basically to be, to be sex positive, to say, Hey, we don't have to do a set of, you don't have to do asceticism to be holy. You know? Yeah. He was a monk. I was a nun. We're getting married. We're really going to have a physical sex, physical sexual relationship. And we're going to show everybody that this is happening and it's for real. Um, and so that was the other thing I was thinking of. I don't know. What, what did this poem make you think of David? Uh, it made me think of the, the parable of the virgins with lamps. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, I mean, what are the virgins waiting for, right? (laughs) The virgins are waiting for the coming of the bridegroom, uh, for the, that gang of, that gang of, of bachelors, (laughs) um, to come with, you know, the, the, the maidens are there keeping their, not their, you know, the, the translation that Katie and I are using maidens all night keeping vigil, Mm. uh, Make a song someday of your love and of your violet-lapped bride, right? So, you know, so they're, they're waiting for everyone to show up so that they can sing. And then here come the bachelors. They're, you know, they're rowdy. And, and, and the party's going to go all night like a nightingale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the, I, I really think that was a great point made earlier that, you know, it's, we need to be imagining these as teenagers, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, and the, the rowdiness makes more sense at that point. I mean, it's like think prom except marriage, right? Like <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. maybe a little bit like uh, quinceañera, where you know yeah. you have these kind of groups of young men and young women supporting the in that case the girl who's who's you know turning fifteen. But uh, but yeah, that same kind of thing. That's a great point. Yeah, I thought the uh, youth, because that, that actually came up when we did the Iliad again, too, because uh, Achilles, at least, is a teenager when the uh, uh, the Trojan War begins. Oh, yeah. 
So I mean, always forget that because you at least you know it's hard for me to in completely evict um, oily Brad Pitt <laughs> from my memory. Oh no! Um, but yeah, yeah, he's he's like I don't know, sixteen or whatever. I don't know. He's, Something he's, like that. Yeah, he's not he's not old. No. Yeah, how old? Uh, Sarah was reading about Greek marriage. Um, how old typically was the bride? I mean, I think. I'm- 15 14 like really pretty young i i think one of the commentaries that i was reading said that it was advised that men take their brides pretty young so they could teach them like let them be of the childbearing age but pretty young so that you can be the one to teach them good habits so that was there you go well and and we were talking about this last night and I, i don't know as much about Greek culture, especially since every Greek city was different. Um, but I know in ancient Rome, anyway, there were kind of similar age age disparities between the bride and the groom sometimes. And at least in the case of the Romans, very often that was because a man by the age of 20 might already be a widower, um, you know, or a divorcee. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's a, 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 you know, less, festive aspect of uh of the 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 youth the teens are older back then than they are now maybe yes yes but still with all the same hormones (laughs) um let's uh let's go ahead and move and talk about um lp 112 which is the one that i chose and then we'll finish up uh with if Sarah has one she wants to talk about. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to read 112 in its entirety because it's about five lines. Um, and, uh, and then we can, can talk it out. Um, so in our translation, it says, fortunate bridegroom. Now the marriage that you prayed for is accomplished. You have the girl for whom you prayed and you bride, your appearance is full of grace. Your eyes are gentle and love wells on your delightful face. Aphrodite has honored you beyond all others. And the thing that, the thing that struck me the most about this, particular poem at least in this translation is when i finished reading it i thought man you could sub in god for aphrodite and you could read this one at a christian wedding now and i don't think anybody would turn a hair about it um the emphasis on praying for the marriage um on the part of the bridegroom um praying for this girl um you know to be given to him um made me th- and and that the also the emphasis on gentleness and love this poem feels very different than 30 Right. It feels um, a little more sweet, um, a little less sexual. Um, and so I, that was my first thought was just I thought, well, you could you could just read that at a wedding right now. And um, you know, but again, you can't not with Aphrodite. If you throw in Aphrodite, then everybody's going to go, what are you reading? What is, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Though it would be kind of funny to 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 read the first like, you know, five lines and just not tell anyone that you're reading Sappho or whatever at your <laughs> at your Christian wedding. What did you guys think about 112? I'm, I'm glad I, I think what you pointed out is true. The tone is so different than some of the others. It, it is much more gentle. It's a lot more like, I, I think the word gentle is good because um, the way it describes her in, in this translation, um, it says your eyes and then there's a break and it says honey sweet. And I just love that choice of word, like honey sweet. There's something about that. That is really sweet. It's just beautiful. How did your translation put it, though, Katie? 
It was like, your form is graceful and your eyes, honey, sweet. What does yours say? Mine, mine says, your appearance is full of grace. Your eyes are gentle. Okay. Um, That's beautiful, too. But honey, yeah. sweet. Just I like honey, like... sweet. That's a little more evocative to me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there must be some kind of honey image there because my translation says, you move gracefully. Your eyes are honey. And that, nice. that your eyes are construction is just screaming Song of Solomon to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, like, you know, honey instead of, what is it, doves in this case? Doves. Uh, I don't remember. But, yeah, that, that um, what Sarah was kind of saying, too, that, that and, and Katie as well, that emphasis. So if that, uh, if that other poem is, you know, you know, your best man kind of ribbing you and, you know, wagging his eyebrows up and down at you about, you know, what's about to happen and everything, this poem is where he kind of takes you aside because this is addressed to the bridegroom. Uh, he kind of, you know, he's like, let's be serious for a second. This is a great thing that's happening to you. This is an answer to your prayers. You know, the bride is whom you wished for. And that's, you is know. Is the second part, though? Like, is that speaking about that speaking is, to yeah, the bride? That's addressed. That part, yeah, the second half of this is addressed to the bride. My, mine divides those two parts into separate quotations. That's cool. Um, but that there, makes it a little but more But there clear. is a... Yeah, and apparently there is the, it, one or a couple of lacunae in the text, so we, I guess we don't know the full context of who is speaking to whom. But um, but yeah, the, the the kind of rowdiness is gone now, and here we're getting kind of a serious moment that you know appropriate to the gravity and to the sweetness of what's about to happen, and it's it is it is sweet. Mm-hmm. And you know, the bride is whom you wished for. Uh, you couldn't always guarantee that in this world. Mm-hmm. Well, LP one thirteen is a nice follow-up um for you oh bridegroom there was never another girl like this one mm-hmm. I, it, it, it's it's that idea is just it's just so it's just so sweet mm-hmm. um, that, hmm? i was gonna say that's interesting because i chose uh 113 and 114 to talk about so i'll wait till we're done with 112 because this one is so beautiful like but it's interesting because I had like a completely different perception of 113 so I'll, I'm curious awesome I, I just <laughs> want to pitch in on 112 that I am not used to thinking of Aphrodite this way yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> Right, like a- Aphrodite I know I know the one the Aphrodite I know from Homer is bloodthirsty and kind of skeevy like she's she's not great uh the the venus that i know from virgil is not much better i mean she's our hero's mom but like (laughs) you know like like he does not approve of everything that she gets up to on his behalf um but i think there might be um a, a way in which the 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 later Christian reception of Greek myth has um, sort of moved Aphrodite, moved Venus um, into a much more body naughty corner that would not have been entirely um, not that she's not in that corner for the ancient Greeks. But that she can also convey this stuff too, like she can be associated with the sweet stuff too. 
Whereas in the in in kind of later, you know, the Christian cultures, later Christian cultures' reception of Greco-Roman myth, um, God is the one who has like sweet love, <laughs> and Venus just gets the, um, uh, would you say the bathroom the bathroom graffiti? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I, I don't think that those two versions of Aphrodite are mutually exclusive by any means, right. which, which you're not saying. But, I mean, it, you know, we've also got to think of the way as well that Christianity actually made room for romantic love. Uh, because this this is sweet, but at the same time, maybe it's sweet because of Aphrodite's reputation. And it's like you're... You know, your your kind of sketchy aunt is like actually doing you a, a <laughs> for once. You know, um, it's like yeah, yeah, she's crazy. Yeah, she's been married ten times, um, but she's actually doing something really sweet for you this Christmas. So make sure seriously, thank you. I don't, and uh, as, as opposed to again, where um, again with, with uh, uh, the later coming of Christianity, you can actually get. I'm struggling with exactly how to formulate this because it's so complicated. So I, I used to listen to a podcast called the, I think it was just called the Trojan War podcast. And it's like the entire mythological apparatus built around the Trojan War told in a narrative form by, by this really gifted storyteller who has a hilarious Canadian accent, which is which is very funny to imagine on the plains of Troy. Uh, but he, he, every time he intru- introduced Aphrodite into the story, he said, you know, he actually made kind of the opposite point, which is that we tend to think of her as the goddess of love when he, he would say for the Greeks, she was the god goddess of everything below the belt. So we're getting a aspect of that, but, but for once it's actually, that, that's what I was driving at for once it's actually welcome where romantic love, unlike in the later Christian tradition, romantic love for the Greeks is sometimes kind of insanity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that comes – it's been forever since I've read the symposium, but I mean that's one of the uh, the downsides of romantic sexual love is it drives people crazy, right? Um, and so you know that's why Plato argues for a higher spiritual love, and, and only later are those two things actually fused in a uh, in a, a – meaningful and healthy way where here you're waffling back and forth between those two. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> I had to kind of find my way to it. Well, uh, I don't know. Can't contradict me, correct me, whatever. <laughs> well, Did that make any sense. I mean, we didn't talk much about it in, uh, the city of man episode episode that we recorded about that hideous strength, but there oh. is an appearance of, there is an appearance of Aphrodite Venus Paralandra mm-hmm. um, in the story, and it and it is as the as the the sort of blessing spirit over Athalamos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like 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 the that's that's the end of that book, um, mm-hmm. and the idea that um, for the old pagan, the scene would be similar, right? Like the forces, the the forces at work are similar, but there's there's there is a difference that Christianity makes to it, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not wholly alien. Right. Um, I, I I don't know. I I like thinking that somebody somebody felt something at their wedding. I don't know what what, what it would be like twenty five hundred years ago. That was something like I felt at my wedding. 
<laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think this is evidence for that for sure. Mm-hmm. Which and maybe that's, I mean, maybe that's as good a place as any. And maybe we've already said it, and we don't have anything more to say. But what do you taking kind of? Um, well, no, really quick, actually, before I ask that question, Sarah, I want to hear what you have to say about 113 and 114 before I ask um, the next question, because I think that we need to hear about those two before we kind of do a little bit of a, of a gathering up of all of our thoughts. So what did you think about 113 and 114? Well, I'll, I'll start with 113, and it is so short. It says, for never, bridegroom, was there another, another girl like this? And when I first read that with Jordan in the Penguin Classics, I read the commentary on the side, and it said um, it said that the the speaker is like a salesperson um, who is who is kind of like persuading the groom. You know, I don't know. It, it just says that he's like a salesperson. The speaker's like a salesperson who's pointing out the child, the age of this bride, and for some reason, I think it's just their choice of the word salesperson, sales and wedding, like. That's something I have a hard time with, but yet that was, you know, like not sales, but like family agreements and dowries and everything. It's just such a foreign concept to me that I automatically like red flags go up. Like what? You know, you're persuaded, you're you're selling, but I don't think that's what the commentary meant. It's just that it flavored how I looked at it. I didn't see it as like this sweet you know, hey, look at this. There's no one else like this. Instead, I, my whole like view on it was just sort of flavored by that idea of a sale, like a purchase, you know? And oh. and I, I just kind of struggled with that. Like once David said it like that, I was like, oh, that, that does sound really nice. Why did I think it was such a, why did well, I? I don't have a, I don't have a footnote. <laughs> Why did I have this jaded? But I yeah. really had a jaded feeling about it. I was like, oh, you know. And then I read 114, and it was like, virginity, virginity, where have you gone? You've deserted me. Never again will I come to you. Never again will I come. And um, I guess the reason I thought of those two together is because um, the the idea of youth and, and purity is is important in this culture and those ideas are still like themes today like youthfulness and you know some idea of virginity that that is still like a really big deal today you know and I thought the tone for 114 was really interesting too because um I think as a woman too I mean that's just once it's gone, it's gone, honey, you know, and like, (laughs) I mean, there's no going back, like the, the responsibilities that weigh on you. And the I mean, your world is changed, you know, totally. I don't know what the tone is intended to be. I don't know what Sappho, you know, is it regret? Is it like, is it just like sadness almost like mourning for something that I'll never be there again, but we're moving on. I don't know, but I thought the two of them together, just because they both show this, this, like there's a prize. The prize element is youthfulness, purity, innocence. And I also thought it was interesting that in the poems I read that is prized in the woman. It never comes up like, oh, look at these, look at these guys that are 
I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe they're out there. Y'all would know more than I would, but it seems as though like that is valued in the women. And I thought that's interesting because in our culture, I feel like that's a lot of the conversations you hear. It's pretty valuable. People talk about it as a thing that pertains to women. Like, oh yeah, you know, she's a virgin or, oh, she's so young or whatever. But no one's talking about, I mean, nobody says that about the men. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They Okay, I'm like, I'm not trying to step on toes or anything. I'm just yeah. saying, you know, no, it's 40 true. year old virgin was kind of a big deal because nobody, <laughs> I mean, you know. That makes perfect sense. And you're totally right. I think that 113 really depends on who the speaker is, and we don't know who the speaker yeah. is. So you're right. David, yeah, David's right. Our, our edition we're reading is literally just the poem text no footnotes of any kind so we're kind of flying blind i had no idea about that kind of idea of that this is maybe an attempt to um persuade the groom that this is the right girl you know and and, and i don't know i'm like where do they yeah i think it brings into question all these textual scholars too because like even in my short brief two-week encounter with sappho (laughs) i'm aware that there's a little bit of controversy about who the speakers are and who the subjects are and, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, are these, these could even be jokes. We, you know, we don't know why. I mean, there, there's so much missing context. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the idea of, you know, is the, the commentator in my edition unwisely used the term salesperson or salesman, which did put a very kind of, um, I don't want to say cynical, but it, it put an edge on the scenario. I don't. I don't know that that's necessarily warranted, though, because we've all. I think we've all had a pushy older relative who is constantly trying to kind of pitch us to eligible, you know, <laughs> eligible members of the opposite sex. You yeah, know, that and, makes and, sense. You know, I can't. I can't believe we haven't brought up my big fat Greek wedding yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was thinking of the matchmakers in Mulan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, some e- even if this poem is is even if the speaker of this particular poem is a shill, it might be somebody who's shilling this girl because she is loved. Yeah. It's like, hey, you know, you're a big strong guy. You need to take care of this girl. She's right. The she best. she's the one yeah. for you. Right. Look how well she can carve wool. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> she can weave. It's what yeah. women do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It did I mean, help, um, good at it. It did make me think too, though, about if it's meant in a more of a in that more sweet vein. It made me a little bit think of LP sixteen, which we talked about in episode two, um, which is one of the one of the love poems, which actually talks about Helen of Troy. But the kind of conclusion, Sappho, or the the theme of that one is whatever you want most, whatever person you want most is most beautiful to you, like. So that, um, which is really interesting to hear her say about Helen of Troy, who's always been this kind of, (laughs) everyone considered her objectively beautiful, right? Like, there wasn't like, oh, you know, I mean, maybe, I think she's nice looking. Um, But, so when I first read 113, when it says, for you, there was never another girl like this one, I thought a little bit of that. So if it's meant meant in that more sweet way, that could be kind of an implication. But I think, this is a problem with fragments, and you're right, Sarah. We, We don't know what she meant. Half of these poems are only half here. And so, yeah, you can kind of take it however you want to take it. And I think that you're you're right about 114 as well, about this. Is it a lament for virginity? Is it a statement of fact? Just kind of this is my reality now? 
is that this part of my life is over. And I think especially then, nowadays we have this really extended adolescence, this long period of time where you're slowly transitioning into adulthood. But for these girls, for someone, you know, a young woman getting married at that time, she's a basically almost still a child in the sense of probably her life experience. And then she gets married and now she's an adult. And virginity yep. and youth are over. And now she's probably going to be having a baby pretty soon. And it was yep. abrupt. And so that, I, I was feeling that in 114 a little bit. I mean, it could say, virginity, virginity, where have you gone? I have not slept eight hours in a row. Like, <laughs> since. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also interesting because in this other, ping, in the Penguin Classics, it said, it translated it as maidenhead, maidenhead, where have you gone, you know, and then it's like the other speaker it switches and it's like, I'm never coming back to you, never, ever again or something. And then it, it said in the, the commentary, um, it was like, she, it's almost like she's been decapitated, you know, maidenhead, like that was just something they threw out there. Um, so it is, it's just a very interesting, I don't know, that one grabbed me though, because I feel like I just, I feel like that's a timeless sentiment in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a regret or anything. I'm just saying it's a timeless sentiment. There's, I was a girl and now I'm not, you know, like that's a pretty common feeling even today. Yeah. Hmm. Lost youth. Oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. That was all I was going to say. Go ahead, Jordan. Now, I, it also occurs to me just now how individual it is, where so many of these other poems are about communities of people coming together. You know, mm -hmm. there are the maidens and there are the rowdy groomsmen. And here, you know, you've got in one poem a girl being, you know, praised and promoted. Let's let's, you know, make it positive, uh, at least for this for this example. And then in the next, you know. Again, that that very great poignancy over that very short, sweet, and tender time between physically becoming an adult and then being initiated into, you know, womanhood and marriage. Um, again, that it is about a girl specifically. Uh, each of the poems, and uh, um, again, as opposed to you know, you don't you don't get those teams of people. Here, even even though these these individuals would exist in community, there, there's still space for for uh, whatever in, whatever tone these individuals are striking. I had a uh, one last question. I had, or well, actually, I have two last questions. But the question I mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask after we had talked about everybody's poem choices, and we've said a lot about this, so this is, I guess, kind of a rounding up you know, conclusions kind of question is what else besides what we've already said, do you think that these poems are telling us if anything about what Sappho and or her culture thought about marriage kind of in general? Okay. I, I felt after reading these poems, I felt overwhelmingly like youth, innocence, purity were highly valued. Um, and I, I felt like, that was the one thing I could take away from the poems we read. There were so many unknowns, but I knew for sure that a young bride who is a virgin is something to be greatly desired. Um, and and there were a lot of other beautiful things, but that was something I, I really took away that was very special. 
Um, I guess uh, two things jump out at me, and I've already talked about the kind of um, the community built into these songs, uh, and that should point us toward the sacredness of marriage. Because uh, I mean, it, it, you know, it is it is a sacred event. You know, the gods are present. We have invoked them through these songs, and, and we are asking Aphrodite and Hymen and these various other gods to come down. You know, Apollo and Ares to attend to the man. These goddesses of marriage to attend to the woman. Um, and again, that is a, a communal affair, but it is also a, a sacred affair. Um, and with that in mind, uh, I, I I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention a recurring theme in some of the poems we kind of avoided but uh you know anatomy <laughs> to, to put it delicately uh you know I, I try to emphasize to my students that um call christianity a patriarchy all you want ancient greek and roman religion was very often phallus like literally phallus worship uh, and um yeah i mean just just get on Google Earth sometime and get on Street View in Pompeii and start looking around, you know, uh, you know, 10 foot statues of various items in the center of Greek city, village, you know, Greek village squares and things like that. Uh, you know, this this that that is an element at play here that I, I don't want to ignore, uh, even, even though, again, in, in their own ways, there was a lot of this. this there was a lot of the same identifiable emotions and sentiments bound up in it in the same you know because this is a sacred and a community event and um, um i think that's the bridge across some of these other more obvious chasms like that uh as much <laughs> it's, a, it's i mean in some ways it's like today these are the songs people would be singing as they bar hop the night yeah. before you know like yeah. <laughs> it, it sort of made me think of that yeah i mean i mean a number but, of them are com- comparing the groom's manhood to mars and you know you gotta you gotta build an extension onto the house to make room for it and that kind of thing and it's Crazy. yeah so I mean I don't want to I don't want to avoid that aspect of it but um, again that it sorry is this the first uh, raise the roof lyric <laughs> seriously that's I, I didn't realize it but this is where J D Salinger got the title raise high the roof beam carpenters which uh there you go. Casts the catcher in the rye in a weird new light. It's particularly interesting <laughs> to find that stuff in Sappho, too, because most people, all they know about Sappho is that she probably, we don't know everything, right? There are so many question marks. Um, her relationships were mostly with women. So it's really interesting to find those kind of really precise anatomical, you know, metaphors and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of funny. It's not what you would expect to find when you think, I'm going to sit down and read some some poems by Sappho of Lesbos. You know, that's not what you're expecting to find. Um, David, <laughs> uh, any? did you have any comments, there. David? <laughs> well, she's um, one of the things that I think will help us uh, with with that particular expectation, Katie, and it plays into some things that we've been saying since the beginning, which is that Sappho sees marriage as she sees her poetic work as a whole as part of the whole culture. Yeah. She, as a poet, yeah. is is working within her community. She is writing the kinds of songs that her community makes use of in these real and concrete ways. Yeah. All right. Um, so she's, you know, Sappho is not like, I can only write the kind of love songs that I would personally feel with my feels. <laughs> um, 
which uh, you know again there's 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 all of these questions but she, she, she yes she is a very personal lyricist she's a very intimate lyricist there's a lot of there's a lot of her in her poetry but she is also a poet in a community and she is presenting not just the marriage and the wedding but also the songs of the wedding as reinforcing that sense of of whole community i mean we we talked earlier about the wedding, the wedding bumping up, bumping up into the honeymoon in a way that makes us uncomfortable. But it is also bumping up into, you know, the bachelor party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in a way that makes us uncomfortable too, or the the bachelorette party, or uh, what, what was it they call it in uh, Death and Paradise? Death and Paradise. Hen party. A hen party. Yeah, yeah or, a hen-do. or the hen do is what they're always they, a hen do. Yeah, um, which it doesn't. It sounds ridiculous, but yeah, David and I love this British series, Death in Paradise, and uh, there's at least two episodes that involve bachelorette parties because the whole place, the whole series takes place on a Caribbean island, so there's always yeah. groups of bridesmaids showing up to party. I've seen <laughs> one episode of that, and I did really like it. I just never found it again. <laughs> it's out there. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, got a little bit of time on my hands, so I might look for it. <laughs> Check it out. Um, one last question, and then we need to go because we're a little over an hour. My last question, and if you guys don't have an answer for this one, that's fine too. But if you do, awesome. Um, have you read any other uh, epithalamia? And if you have, how do these poems by Sappho compare to any of those others that you may or may not have read? Well, we were talking about Song of Solomon. Um, that's something, I mean... It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful example of a marriage poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and what were a few of the others we mentioned? They're like, well, Song of Solomon is the only one I can immediately call to mind. Yeah, I know there was another one, but, but it, that's the big one. Yeah, it's got that like very beautiful lyrical celebration, and it is, you know, it's the kind of thing that when you're ten years old, you snicker about in the back of church when you know you leaf through it. But you know that is, it is. Uh, it is beautiful and it is sacred and it is body and it is holistically integrated in a really beautiful way. And, and I see that in, in Sappho as well, that, that kind of integration, as, as David was saying about the, both the individual and the community, which I, I think is maybe one of the most attractive aspects of her poetry. Um, I, <laughs> I, I when we were looking at epithalamia until about an hour ago, uh, I was like, "Oh yeah, Keats wrote an epithalamia." No, he wrote Endymion. So, so uh, <laughs> I, it's got a lot of the same letters. Yeah, it, it was it was uh, Spencer who wrote an epithalamia, but, and I and I know I've read it, but it has been so long, I, I cannot say anything meaningful about it. So uh, here endeth my lesson. David, how about you? Anything? Um, well, I know that uh, I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> but uh, I just it, for for those of you who are looking for a version of Song of Solomon that isn't going to make the middle school boys boy snicker, it's Psalm 45, uh, which is a a royal wedding song, um, and it has some of the same notes. Um, particularly about the beauty of the bride uh, that are in this. Um, but also Spencer's Epithalamian, uh, which uh, 
is uh, it was actually written in honor of Spencer's own uh, own marriage. Uh, it's it's part of a paired uh, a poetic pair, the Amoretti or the Little Loves or Little Love Songs, uh, a sequence of sonnets which are sort of about his courting of uh, of his wife, and then the Epithalamian, which sort of walks through, counts down the hours till the wedding, um, and it's it's very much uh, of of this this poetic groom. Um, contemplating every aspect of the day and nature and, you know, the things that are around him and, and, and calling all of it to, to rejoice with him. Um, it's, it's, it's wonderful stuff. And that, that is one of the differences here is that that, that epithalamian is very much embedded, embedded uh, in the, in the persona of the bridegroom. Uh, something similar in Song of Solomon, um, we have the 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 lover and the beloved. We have the man and the woman in the Song of Solomon. But then we also have that chorus of virgins who pipes up every once in a while, <laughs> like they're hiding in the corner and they you know they they come out when it's their turn. Um, but I, I I find it interesting, kind of looking at those looking at those alongside of Sappho. Um, the ways that Sappho is always speaking to the people who are uh, who are in the in the wedding party, um, but we don't always hear their voices, with the exception of the poem that you gave us, Sarah. Thanks. Um, the the one that the one that I thought of when we were reading all of these, the the, the poet that I thought of was John Donne, um, because. I feel like in a lot of ways there's nobody like done for combining sweetness and just some super shady descriptions into the same poems. Um, and the one that I, and he actually, he has several, he wrote enough uh, epithalamia that at least in my edition, there's a, a section in the book that are all of his put together. But the one that I was thinking of particularly is the marriage song on the lady Elizabeth and count Palatine being married on St. Valentine's day. Um, and I was thinking of it because it's, it has those same aspects. You've got two individual people, but it's also very much a community type of situation because he's writing about a royal wedding. So it's something that the entire kingdom is interested in, participating in, viewing, you know, parts of it happen with processions and things. Um, and so in that way, it's very public. Um, the language is very beautiful. Um, and the, he's actually speaking to... Um, it's the, the, the poem begins, hail Bishop Valentine, whose day this is. Um, and so that's kind of interesting. He's not speaking to the bride or the groom, but, um, and the, the whole point of this poem is talking about why is everyone being so slow? Um, you know, we need to get to the wedding so that we can get to the wedding night. And that's the whole poem. And so, um, you know, she, she, uh, he talks about, um, you know, why is the bishop, uh, why is he being so slow? Um, why do you two walk so slowly paced in this procession? Um, and then later he says, uh, night has come and yet we see formalities retarding thee. What mean these ladies? Which as though they were to take a clock in pieces, go so nicely about the bride. A bride before <laughs> a bride before a good night could be said should vanish from her clothes into her bed as souls from body steal and are not spied. Um, and so, you know, it's very, he, he kind of 
it takes a long time to say something very simple, which is why is all this taking so long, but it's very direct and um, has those kind of individual and group things mixed up together. So I, I really can't recommend his marriage songs high enough. Dunn's are really, really beautiful and a lot of fun. A lot, I mean, a lot of kind of, because there's a little bit of cheekiness um, in all of his poems that aren't his holy sonnets. Um, well, listeners, thank you for sticking with us through um, this you know, meandering, but really, really fun and uh, in-depth discussion of Sappho. Um, thank you to David, Jordan, and Sarah for joining me to talk about it, even though, uh, again, as stated, I'm new to this whole kind of thing with Sappho poetry. But um, listeners, keep listening through because this is not the end of our series on Sappho and join us next time. Core Curriculum is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network and you can find show notes for this episode and other episodes in this series and in the other series on the blog at christianhumanist.org. You can also follow the Christian Humanist Radio Network on Twitter at at CH Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our publishing liaison, and thanks again for joining us for this edition of Core Curriculum.